looking at the golden rule today. And if you saw that in the bulletin, you might be thinking, I know that. I've heard that. I live by that. Or, I know that. I've heard that. I don't live by that. Matthew 7, 12 may be the most well-known verse in the Bible besides John 3, 16. Now, no one knows the address, but everybody knows what it says, or at least the first part. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, This is uh, another often misunderstood and misused verse. How many of those have we come across in the Sermon on the Mount? There have been a lot of them. And uh, to many, to believers and unbelievers alike, it's seen as an ethical maxim, a a moral obligation, and nothing more. We're going to hopefully change all that today in terms of perspective. So if you would, please open up your Bibles to Matthew 7 and stand with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 to get the context, though we're looking really at verse 12 today, just one verse. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. We thank you, Lord, that as we came here today, there were so many reminders of that. The cross, that that you, before the foundation of the world, purposed to redeem a people for your own possession. Lord, we think about even seeing one another and realize that we are flawed people who are in need of Christ. We thank you for the reminder of your word as we look in it today that we need what you have to say, that you have spoken truth we need to live. And without it, Lord, we are lost. Without you, we are lost. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would show us, that you would teach us, that you would guide us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Matthew 7, 12, known as the golden rule. Gold is a symbol of wealth. Gold is very valuable. Uh, It is treasured. The golden rule is the epitome of all rules. The gold standard of ways to live and relate to people. Now, many have criticized the golden rule. George Bernard Shaw said this, 
the golden rule is that there are no golden rules. He also said this, do not do unto others as you would expect that they should do to you. Their tastes may not be the same. One writer said the golden rule is a good standard which is further improved by doing unto others whenever reasonable as they want to be done by. Very humanistic uh, way of looking at it. Uh, This, by the way, is known today as the platinum rule. To do unto others as they want to be done. They just give you a little order and you, you act in that way. Now, in the Olympics, you have got your gold, silver, and bronze medals, right? Now, getting a bronze medal is nothing to to downplay, but there is a prioritization of medals. Everyone remembers who won the gold. No one remembers who won the silver or the bronze. You are either an Olympic gold medalist or you're not. Uh, The others are inferior prizes, relatively speaking. I say that because... As people have wrestled with the golden rule over the years, centuries really, philosophers, uh, students of ethics have torn it apart, have dismantled it, and have tried to redefine it in, in more pragmatic terms, in simpler ways, really easier for people to do. And what happens is they may try to make it more, uh, excuse me, less demanding on people. And what happens is you get inferior versions of the golden rule. Jesus wasn't the only one. He wasn't the first or the only to say something like this. There's also what is known as the silver rule. I don't know if you're aware of that one, but there's the silver rule. Uh, I'm not joking. This is, this is true. Um, it, it goes like this. Don't do what you don't want done to you. Sounds a lot like the golden rule. It's stated negatively. Don't do what you don't want done to you. Who said that? Confucius said that. He lived between 551 and 479 BC. He said, do not do unto others what you would not want others to do to you. The Jewish uh, scholar Hillel, the elder, writing um, before Jesus, but around 70 BC to AD 10, said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. In fact, there was someone who challenged him. He had a, he had a rival, Rabbi Shammai. And he had, someone came up to him and challenged him and said, I want you to uh, teach the whole law. Uh, give me everything you can teach while standing on one foot. And he basically said, look, uh, don't do unto others what you don't want done to you. And everything else is gravy, pretty much. You know, just this is what it's all about. Um, what else? Uh, in, it was common saying in Jewish literature to phrase this kind of this kind of rule negatively. Uh, the, Jew, the Jewish apocryphal uh, book Tobit says this, what you hate, don't do to anyone. What you hate, don't do to anyone. Uh, but here's what happens. You take the silver rule, and you go out the door today and you try to live that one out. Here is how easy it is. To do that, all you have to do is nothing. Don't do what you don't want done to you. You don't have to think well of anyone. You don't have to uh, be held to any really standard. You just have to uh, abstain from doing. You could still think a bunch of bad things towards someone, though, with the silver rule. Why do people like it so much? Because it's easy. You don't have to do anything, and you've kept it. Now, there is also the bronze rule. Bronze rule is much 
less known. It is, um, it's this. Do before someone does to you. Do before someone does to you. Now, it is a wise wartime tactic for those who served in the military. You know, you've got to play by that rule or you didn't come home. Do before someone does to you. But in real life, in, in, in daily living, very common. Very common. There's also what I will call, and my family told me not to say, and I'm, so I'm going against better judgment, the rusty metal rule. Okay, the rusty metal rule. It is this. Do whatever you want to anybody with no thought or anything and run really fast. No regard whatsoever for anyone else. But whether it's the silver, the bronze, or the rusty metal rule, uh, philosophers such as Immanuel Kant, Friedrich Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, they all dismissed the golden rule. They questioned its application with with questions like this. Well, how does one really know how others want to be treated? They, They already went down to the silver rule, and then said, hey, you really can't do this because how do you know that that's really what they want when they tell you that's what they want? Now, some people say, I live by the golden rule. And they're not even believers. It's like, oh, really? Some say, I live by the golden rule. But in reality, they're living by a standard far inferior and short of what Jesus said. Because this verse has been has been stolen by secular humanists, by atheists, ripped out of its context, hijacked, totally twisted. We're going to steal it back. We're stealing it back. My goal today is to help you see what the golden rule really teaches, what it really means, and then what God would have you do about it, what God would really want from you. And we've got to look at one thing as we start this, because this is where everyone who takes it wrongly goes wrong when they zero in on this verse and they take it completely alone as a standalone concept, divorced from what goes before or even what comes after. So we've got to look at the context. And really the first step in understanding this verse is to figure out what therefore relates to in verse 12. So, or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you. Now, there's really three options of what this refers to. It could be, immediately preceding this, um, verses 7 through 11, and the idea that because God gives good gifts, Jesus' disciples should live by this rule out of gratitude for all those good gifts. Very appropriate way of looking at it. It could be based upon verses 1 through 6. Instead of judging others, we should treat them as we would want to be treated. Very appropriate way to look at it as well. Or, most likely though, it includes that, but really much more. It refers to everything that Jesus has said so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and where we are in 7. This is, by the way, the second reference to the Law and the Prophets. Jesus said, this is... The Law and the Prophets. Literally, this sums up the Law and the Prophets. Second reference to that, um, it's, it's, this is the way you would take it. Therefore, in light of everything I have said so far about the true direction that God's Word points to, obey the Golden Rule. Live by 
this rule. In the context of fulfilling God's word, it gives a short summary of the kingdom righteousness which Jesus is requiring and bringing about in his people. So the golden rule cannot be taken out of context. When it does, you get silver, bronze, rusty metal. Um, As it stands in its true light, it is a powerful, flexible rule for every situation in human life. Yes, it does cover everything. But it's like this. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you say, I'm a Christian, and you take Jesus' words as his words, you take them at face value, they're words from the living God, you cannot escape several things that God wants from you as a result in light of Matthew seven twelve. It is not just an option. It is not just a throwaway. It isn't just a moral platitude to stick in your back pocket and pull out every once in a while when you remember. This is one verse in context which is much more than an ethical rule. And it does show what God expects of Christians. The first thing is with regard to our Heavenly Father, with God Himself. See, verse 12 assumes a higher authority than self. But most people wield this verse alone, as if you could do this in human strength. It assumes a higher authority than God, excuse me, than than self. It it assumes God himself. There is no golden rule without God. Mankind makes himself out to be God. That mindset permeates our world, by the way. We know that. But God wants you to know him and his love. That's the first thing that this verse requires of us. It's the backstory on this verse taken rightly. Now, seeing this verse as one more ethical maximum moral principle among many will lead you away from Jesus. It will not lead you to Jesus. It will lead you to think that you are able to live without God, and that is fundamentally a worldly perspective, and almost every sector of our society is infected by it. We, we have it ingrained so much even in our thinking that it seems odd to question Psalm 14 in verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So anyone who says there is no God is a fool in God's sight. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. You can see the downward spiral. You can see what God has to say. In verse 18, Romans 1 and verse 18, right after Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God, unto salvation for everyone who believes. That in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous will live by faith. You can't live without God. You must believe to be righteous with God, to be right with Him. And then verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Hold it back. Hold it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The fool says in his heart there is no God and he is deceived. That's why he's a fool. And so they are without excuse. Some of us have been fools 
Yes, we act foolishly at times, but some of us have been outright fools because we have said at some point in the past, there is no God. And God brought us to our senses. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart. And the downward spiral continued. Now don't go out today and say that, if so, don't say to someone's face, you know, you're a fool if you don't believe uh, in Jesus. Uh, that will just start something else. But it is the truth. It is the truth. Psalm 119, in fact, says at one point, I have more wisdom than my teachers. You have more wisdom when, in, than your teachers when you're a believer and they're not. The one who said, how much more will your heavenly Father give, you, give what is good to those who ask wants you to know the good love that God has for you. The immeasurable and incomprehensible love that is knowable only through Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus. John chapter 17. And Jesus, he had spoken many words. He had told them of the work of the Holy Spirit. He has told them how he has overcome the world. That they would have tribulation. And after he said all those things, giving them hope, Jesus said this to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. John 17, 1. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God through Jesus Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 says, This is the testimony written to believers, that God has given us eternal life, that this life is in his Son, that he who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. See, the golden rule, much more than a, just a rule or an ethical principle, reminds us in the context that God is sovereign over all things, that he hasn't dealt with us as our sins deserved, and that he wants us to do the same with others, towards others, to others. So the first thing that we've, we've got to keep in mind that is the most forgotten, by the way, when looking at this verse, is that God in regard to him, wants us to know him and know his love. He wants us as believers to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second thing, regarding our brothers and sisters in Christ, regarding the family of God, we've got a heavenly father if you're a believer, and you've got brothers and sisters, some of whom you love and some of whom you don't like so much. Nonetheless, they are your brothers and sisters. We're in the family of God. Household of faith. I love the terminology. But it's messy, isn't it? But with regard to our brothers and sisters in Christ, God wants you to choose wisely for his glory and others' good. But I don't want to. I want to blast them. They did something to make me mad. They did something to hurt me. They've abused me. They've mistreated me. They've cheated me. They've deceived me. 
All that happens amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. The question is this. You can live for yourself. Or you can live for the glory of God and the good of others. It, it makes a huge difference which way you choose. Those choices on a daily basis by born-again believers in Christ, those choices born out over time lead some to, be, some to think, is that person even a believer? Because nothing in their life shows any fruit. Nothing in their life shows any joy. Nothing in their life shows any passion for God or for His people. If you love the Father, you will love the children born of the Father. Historically, the man-made variations of the golden rule, the silver and the bronze and the rusty, were all stated negatively. Don't do whatever you don't want done. Self-preservation. And it only required passive indifference. You could hate the person. You could do it by doing nothing. But Jesus states this rule positively, and what it does, and you can't ignore it, there is no way to get around it, it calls you to action. Do. Act. It's not just think good thoughts. (laughs) It's do. It calls us to action. Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 12 require active obedience to Jesus Christ. You cannot airlift this verse out of the Bible and live by it. You have a false alternative if you do. Unbelievers cannot hijack this verse and live by it in its truest sense. Jesus states it positively, requires active obedience, active engagement for the good of others. It's where it gets tough. Jesus has this way, doesn't he, of getting us to think beyond the way we think, getting us to step out of our comfort zone because we want comfort. But Jesus has this way of pinpointing things so that the, uh, the youngest child can understand, the oldest adult can understand. It's kind of like Galatians 6.10. Do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Do unto others as you would have them do to you with no guarantee of similar treatment. Well, it's easy to look at this verse and go, you know, I'm going to do this and they're going to do likewise. I'm going to do unto them what I want done to me and I will expect it from them. I will even require it of them. I will even chase them down and make sure they give it to me so no one gets hurt. Now, That's not the way this verse reads. It says nothing about similar treatment. What does it teach us about ourselves? What's this verse teach us about ourselves? Once again, consistent with the rest of Scripture, we see that God is holy and God is perfect and we are depraved, sinful, and imperfect. What does it teach us about other people? That they, like us, are depraved, utterly but not completely, as bad as we can be, but not as bad as we can get, results in a desire to fight back, 
Instead of showing active empathy towards other people and kindness towards them, which is what this verse calls for, our default position is one of passive apathy or, or aggressive hostility. And it, and it points out a, the obvious, that we are hurting people, and as a result, we are hurting people. We hurt, therefore we inflict hurt. That hurting people hurt people. And that hurting people who don't process or can, and continue to process their hurt through Jesus continue to hurt people. 712 goes out the window. Golden rule out the window. By the wayside. Maybe the silver gets picked up. Maybe the bronze. But most often the rusty metal gets used. Inflicting greater pain. Inflicting greater injury. Now we might feel justified by it. Because we live in a litigious society who has to claim their rights. We are without excuse before God. It is selfish response on our part. But think about it for a moment. You have hurt others out of your hurt. I have hurt others out of my hurt. So go to Jesus with your hurt. And allow him to heal you. And then engage with other people. Your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Rather than heaping your problems and your hurts upon other people, rather than recycling your hurts over and over and over again. Some people are, are serial hurters. They run from marriage to marriage, relationship to relationship, church to church, hurting people with the hurt that they spill all over everybody, and it's all about them. Now let me say this. Some of you have not experienced Matthew 7, 12 towards you from others in its right standing. You have not had people treat you according to this verse. That's why there's often a lot of hurt. Okay, It's one of those snowball cycles. I, I, I want to acknowledge that. See, quite the opposite. Some of you have not experienced this verse and you have had your guts ripped out by someone claiming to be a Christian. And some of you have done some of the ripping and tearing. Now you apply verses, verse 7, 12 to your BFF and it's a piece of cake, isn't it? But apply this to your toughest relationship. Apply this to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your family member, to your brother, to your sister, to your spouse. And it's tough to pull off. You can't do it in your own strength. The believe in yourself lie that we have been force fed, many of us, most of our lives. Leaves you wanting. It doesn't work. It falls flat. Now you might be able to fake that, but inwardly nothing changes and things only get worse. So what are we supposed to do with the disconnect? How do you deal with this reality? Well, realize this. Realize this. 
that you have often done to others and may currently be doing to others what you would never want done to you. See, God did not say, don't do what you want to do to them. That covers revenge, by the way. (laughs) He says, do what you want done. Forgive. Let it go. Understand. And see, you may have been unjustly treated. You may have been cheated, unfairly accused, betrayed, violated, deceived, harassed, abused. You may at this point be defeated or downcast or distressed. What did, what did Jesus do in response to people in that situation? He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the masses distressed and downcast. And he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He says the same thing to the church, by the way. People who often think everything's about them. That every story they hear somehow has an effect. And they can't see outside themselves. But due to others, after all that, After all that's been heaped upon you, after all the ripping and tearing's been done, some of it legitimate and some of it imagined maybe, but after all that, do to others in God's strength what is Christ-like. That's your calling. What God calls us to do, He enables us to do by the power of His Spirit. We can realize that God is bigger than the pain that's been inflicted by us, on us, and by us, (laughs) And he understands how you feel. But here's the thing. God does not want any of us to respond self-centeredly in self-pity. Woe is me. He wants us to respond with gospel truth. He wants to respond in a way that says no matter what, no matter what people do, no matter what happens, no matter what comes my way, God is in control. And I'm going to trust him. And he's going to bring good out of this situation. I'm thinking about myself right now, though, and I have to ask, why do I get so indignant about being mistreated then? When I can think that thought and then turn right around and be indignant about being mistreated? See, sometimes we can be standing right next to the truth and not see it. That we are sinful people bent on evening the score. Not extending grace and mercy. Think with me for a moment. Think with me for a moment in your own life. Think about how you've been sinned against. The wrong, the hurt, the anger, the pain. You want justice, don't you? You want blood. Now think about how you have sinned. You want mercy, don't you? You're crying out for mercy before God. You're sincerely repentant for what you did and you want others to see that sincerity. You want others to see the truth that's in your heart and so you cry out for mercy. So let your desire for mercy, let your desire for mercy give you perspective. 
the other person is just like you. That brother, that sister that seems so off base. They're guilty before a holy God. And they're wanting mercy. And you could have done the same or worse. Let your desire for mercy give you perspective. Third thing, last thing, about how we ought to respond is regarding those outside the family. Regarding unbelievers, regarding the lost, regarding people we associate with that are in the fool category, though we wouldn't call them that to their face. But the Bible says they're without God in the world. They're without hope. They're deceived by Satan, and they need Jesus. So regarding those outside the family, who, by the way, everyone who knows Jesus were in that category before they knew Jesus. God wants you to share his love for the sake of the gospel. Active engagement for the good of others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, wouldn't you, if you knew, want to know the way out of your hell-bent condition? Wouldn't you want to know the truth if you were in a, in a situation that you couldn't get yourself out of and you'd want someone to help you? Wouldn't you want to know? So regarding those outside the family, God wants you to share his love for the gospel's sake. Active engagement for, for the good of others in God's power. And by the way, here's the thing. Consider the alternatives. You could go with them with the rusty metal rule and just do whatever you want because, hey, I don't care. How many people say that? You know, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people do to me, right? I don't want people to do good to me, so I'm going to do bad to them. You know, all that stuff. You know, that's just coming out of, of, a, of a warped mindset, an unregenerate mindset. But here's the thing. Active engagement for the good of others in God's power holds more promise for the lost becoming found and the way we're getting back on track than any man-made substitute. The people are made in God's image and therefore worthy and deserving of honor and respect and love and acceptance and understanding. So that they would believe and be saved. So that they would worship God. So we are called to exercise Understanding. We are called to exercise compassion and kindness. You want it, so give it. You got it from Jesus, so give it. That's the idea. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the picture of the unbeliever. You say, well, I know unbelievers that are really good, even better than me. We should see what, what God will do with them. <laughs> now, this is a picture of unbelievers, though, you do know that this sometimes is what believers look like, sadly, 
to say, but this is a picture of unbelievers, and we were once this way, it says. And verse 4 says, but when the kindness and goodness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because we kept the golden rule. But according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. The golden rule is much more than an ethical maxim or a rule to live by. It encapsulates the gospel. The gospel is the real golden rule. And we are called to winsomely and contagiously address people's hopes and fears with Christ and his saving work. That our holy God took upon himself sinful flesh, becoming one of us, to do unto us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves. Jesus did unto others what they did not do to him. See, in light of the gospel, we're called to show, again, understanding, kindness, generosity, favor, not moralistically, but gospel-centered. And the gospel is lived when we acknowledge God and his right to rule in our lives and then act accordingly. That we act for good towards others according to Matthew 7, 12. And then how are we to deal with the sin that's committed against us? The way God dealt with our sin against him. God dealt with our sin in a holy, just, and merciful way. And for us, it is pointing others to that same holy, just, and merciful answer. God dealt with our sin with blood, substituting life for life, Jesus' life for ours. And so we then point people to Jesus' life for theirs. See, the world has a man-centric view of the golden rule. And a man-centric view of life will always go bad on you. It will result in either spiritual pride, thinking that you're self-sufficient, thinking that you can be God, or spiritual defeat. But no one by self-effort will be justified in the sight of God. Like we read, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. We read in Ephesians 2 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should live in them. The Philippians 2 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and the very next verse in context says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and do his good pleasure. So God wants us to have a gospel-centered view of this verse and really of all of life. And it's based upon Christ's sufficiency, not man's ability. You can't go out these doors today and say, I'm just going to take the golden rule all by itself. It's got to be in context with who God is and with the gospel message and with God's truth. See, the golden rule reminds us that we have to deal with people. You have ample, by the way, ample, ample uh, opportunity this day, this very day, as well as this very week, in the coming days and hours, uh, to put this rule into practice. Uh, your, your challenge may be sitting right next to you, right? Again, I didn't make eye contact with anyone on purpose, but your challenge may be sitting right next to you in living this out in the power of the gospel. This verse ends with, 
This is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets, Jesus says. This sums up the teaching. This sums up the law, Galatians tells us, was our tutor to lead us to Christ, our child conductor, our helper to show us our utter inability to save ourselves, and we need Jesus. That's what the law was for. Couldn't bring ourselves to God. That God chooses us before the foundation of the world. That he calls us, that he draws us to himself by his irresistible grace. And the prophets, the prophets pointed people to Jesus. Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago in many portions and in many ways, through the prophets in these last days, has spoken to us through his Son. How about Luke 24, after Jesus rose from the dead on the, Emmaus, the road to Emmaus? He opens up the scriptures and shows them what they spoke of him. This verse teaches us that God wants us to know him and then to choose wisely for his glory and others' good in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and then engage for good towards others for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. See, the gospel fills Christians with humility and hope. Fills Christians with meekness and boldness in a very unique way. The biblical gospel is so different than all the world's religions and what they teach. And even from secularism, we know that. See, religions and even secularism uh, rely on this principle. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I do the right thing, therefore I get stuff. But the gospel principle is this, and this is why you can't take the golden rule and go, I'm just gonna live by this, that's all I need. Okay, here's why. It's, It's this principle, I am accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. Jesus comes first. I'm accepted in Christ, therefore I will do unto others as others as I want others to do to me. For the sake of Christ, not for my own sake, not for me to get good stuff back to me. The gospel humbles and affirms us at the same time. I've said this before, that each of us is simultaneously in Christ just and a sinner still. And at the same time, we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe But at the same time, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. To the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, centered on a man dying for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, it removes self-righteousness, it removes selfishness, and it turns its members to, to serve others, both for the Uh, their temporary benefit and for their eternal good. Just as God in Christ has served us. And what this does is it points us to what God did and what he will do. What God did and what he will do. In summing up the Sermon on the Mount with this verse up to this point, Jesus is saying to follow him you need a new way of living that goes beyond man's best efforts. Filthy rags, by the way, our man's best efforts. This verse is not to be understood as a Swiss army knife, okay, of, of ethical maxims. We are to, to live in Christ and, and let the Holy Spirit move us and, and direct us. And you need Jesus. Jesus died for those who killed him. And all of us who are implicated in the crime. 
that come to faith in Christ, you, me, whether we admit it or not, we are deserving of hell forever because of it. And that God has done everything for us, therefore we must do everything for others. That's Matthew seven twelve in a nutshell. Jesus died for those who killed him. And Jesus treated us infinitely better than our sins deserved. So we are to treat people the way God treated us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. The disciple has no special privilege or power of his own in all his interactions with others. The mainspring of his life and work is the strength that comes from fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus offers his disciples a simple rule of thumb which will enable even the least sophisticated of them to tell whether his interactions with others is on the right lines or not. All he need do is put himself on the other person's place. And the moment he does that, the disciple forfeits all advantages over others and can no longer excuse in himself what he condemns in others. He is as strict in condemning evil in himself as he was before with others and as lenient with evil in others as he was before with himself because the evil in the other person is exactly the same evil as in ourselves. Praise God, God's forgiveness is available. That for the humble and the penitent, there is full freedom. There is full power from the, uh, full freedom from the power and penalty of sin in Christ. That God replaces death with life. He replaces despair with joy. He, re- he replaces hate with love. God's mercy flows because Christ's blood was spilled. That's why we can live. 